or remind ourselves together what food actually is. Food consists of living things that we kill so we can live. So food is life. So if you cheapen food, you're cheapening life. And of course, that is what we've been doing for about 150 years now. We are built for pleasure. So why don't we build a good life around the things that give us pleasure? This is the Dependance podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. And my name is Geert Maarsen. And today's episode is all about food. To be more specific, the idea that the way we produce, distribute and consume food has shaped everything in the world as we know it, from global capitalism to the cities we live in. And as we have been floating from crisis to crisis, the guest you're about to listen to has spent the last decades designing us, as she likes to call it, a lifeboat. Her books, especially her most recent one, are about the question how to live well, to eat well, to feed ourselves and others well without destroying the planet. She started out as an architect, but slowly evolved into a philosopher, political economist, food urbanist and an ecologist. She's the author of the books Hungry City and more recently, Sitopia, How Food Can Save the World. Listen to the talk she gave with us earlier, Carolyn Steele. Well, many thanks to Gert, is that good? Um, for that very kind introduction, and to Thais, um, and to Da Dependence for having me here, and uh, thank you for all coming out to what feels like the edge of the universe, but actually is apparently quite close to the metro. Um, anyway, it is indeed very exciting to be in this amazing space that apparently used to be um, a fruit uh, warehouse, and it is incredibly impro- appropriate for me um, because, as Gert said in his kind introduction, uh, I'm an architect, but I've actually spent the last 22 years, actually, probably longer if you count the stuff before the, the mega kind of light bulb moment, thinking about food and how food shapes our lives. Um, this is me um, clutching uh, the first copy of Cytopia, which actually came out the same week that the pandemic was declared, um, which felt sort of like a curse at the time, but actually turned into a really wonderful thing because somehow when there's a crisis on, people are really hungry for new ideas. And I've basically spent the last two and a half years talking behind end off a donkey, which I quite like, so that's good. But... Um, the word I will explain, Cytopia, uh, it's a word I made up. Uh, the, the subtitle, How Food Can Save the World. Um, this is interesting. I, mean, I don't know how many of you have written books, but basically you have an interesting relationship with your publisher. They want to sell books. You just want to kind of get your ideas out and kind of 20 people reading it would be fine. Um, oddly, that is the psychology. But, um, you know, I said, I really want to call this book Zootopia. And they said, but nobody knows what that is. And I said, well, that's the point. It's a new idea. Um, but they said, anyway, we battled over it. And they said, OK, you can call it Zootopia as long as you have a subtitle like How Food Can Save the World. 
And I said, that's ridiculous. I, you know, that sounds like Superman or something. I can't possibly say that. And then my editor, and again, the relationship you have with your editor is very interesting. She's blonde and has kind of long eyelashes that flutter at you. And you wouldn't think, you know, but she's absolutely hard as steel. And she sort of just said very quietly, but Carolyn, that is actually what you're saying. And I thought, oh, maybe it is. And it is. So, so that's why I've got a slightly weirdly titled book. Um, what does it actually mean? Zootopia is a word I invented probably about 17 years ago now, and it just means food place, and I'll explain a bit more about why I invented this word. But in brief, it's just a way of describing the fact that we live in a world shaped by food. Um, and if that seems like a bit of a bold statement, let me just remind you that you are made of the meals that you've eaten in your life. Um, and that by the age of about 25, there is no atom in your body that isn't made of your previous meals that you were born with. Um, and that your minds are completely affected by your gut. And of course, we're discovering more and more about this now. So your mood, the way you react to things, your hormones are all to do with um, how your gut is doing, which is to do with how you eat. Uh, and of course, as we know, if we celebrate something, we go out to meet so our sort of, uh, and eat something, so our habits, uh, our spaces, our cities, our landscapes, our politics, our economics, our climate are all shaped by food. In fact, every living thing on the planet has to eat. And so in the act of eating, we join ourselves to every other living thing. Um, that's the power of food. So I thought it would be quite good to have a, a word for that. Um, I'll explain later why I went Greek with it. Um, Okay, so the question of how to eat is, and indeed the, the Dutch version, I mean, another thing, when your book gets translated, um, I was very, very happy to, I don't know why I'm telling you all this, but anyway, here I am telling you, um, I was very happy to have uh, uh, someone who wanted to translate uh, my second book, Zootopia, into Dutch. Um, I was insisting on the book being called Zootopia, very rigidly, as I had done with my English publishers, and then literally two days before it was due to sort of start printing, they said, oh, by the way, we're not calling it Zootopia. We're calling it Gun Eten. And I said, what? Um, said, oh, it's very special in Dutch. It has a special meaning and everything. And they just had me over a barrel. So that is why, to me, very irritatingly, the Dutch version is not called um, Zootopia. Nevertheless, you'll have to explain to me afterwards why Gun Eten is such a special thing to say. But anyway... Um, <laughs> But it does kind of mean this, doesn't it? And the question of how to eat is, is our oldest, most practical problem. And indeed, trying to solve it is really how we've evolved as a species. Um, something you'll notice, I love this picture. This is the Hadza, which is one of the very few groups of people in the world who still live as hunter-gatherers. And of course, we as humans spent most of our time on the planet living as hunter-gatherers. I mean, basically if Homo sapiens has been around for about 200,000 years and humans for about 2 million years, um, we only started farming about 12 years ago, living in cities about 5,000 years ago, uh, spending all our lives on the internet about kind of 10 years ago. You know. So there's this kind of extraordinary inheritance that we have of actually living like this. Um, and if you look at this image, you'll see something very obvious, which is that these humans are not just in the landscape, but they are sitting around a fire, and they're socialising around the fire. Now, since I'm talking about food, you know, the invention of fire has a very special significance. Of course, it, you know, Darwin called it the second most important development after language. Um, but actually, in, the, in terms of food, what the discovery of fire did was it allowed our ancestors to start cooking. 
And cooking is a profound thing to do because it means that you can take on calories much more quickly, which allowed our ancestors to specialize in hunting, uh, which meant that their diet improved. And the reason they could specialize in hunting, by the way, was because um, hunting is a kind of high-risk way of feeding yourself. So basically, you spend a lot of energy, a bit like me when my Eurostar was 45 minutes late and I was kind of running through you know, the... Brussels midi earlier, trying to catch the train to get here. Um, you, you spend a lot of energy running after something that you might not kill. And that's a bummer if you want to eat that night um, or indeed survive. If you've got a backup meal, so somebody's staying back in camp, they're looking for tubers in the ground, they're cooking them so you can come back. And whether or not you're successful, you can still eat. This was a game changer. So I always say that, you know, you hunt, I cook. And basically, the people saying this were women. So you hunt, go off men, go and you're faster runners than we are, go and hunt. There will be a meal for you when you get home. If this is sounding even remotely familiar, it's because, of course, this division of labor has kind of persisted quite a lot into the modern age, and that's a discussion we can have in itself. But nevertheless, it was a game changer. And then if you think about what it meant to sort of come back at the end of the day, whether or not there was a successful kill, sitting around the fire, cooking whatever food you had, sharing it out um, nicely. We're the only species in the world that shares food nicely. The only other one is a bon the bonobos. Um, and I don't know, I've never had a meal with a bonobo. But I mean, you know, maybe they do it better than we do. But I mean, it's very unusual in the animal world. Normally, people kind of fight for food or, or you know, animals fight for food and <laughs> eat like this in a corner. We learned how to share around the fire. And the shared meal, I often say, is not only the first human economy, but the best, because we're very, very good at sharing through food. I mean, how often have you been at a table and there's six of you there and there's only five potatoes and you all kind of go, ooh, I don't know. Or there's seven potatoes and you happily eat it, but then there's one left and you all kind of stare at it going, you know, but, but this is, think about if those potatoes were money and you couldn't see it. Everyone just goes, yeah, thank you very much. I'll have all that for myself, which is how we share through money. So there's a very, very important thing about the shared meal. We evolved through it. We learned how to share, to connect, to communicate. And also, it sort of remains within us. Our hormones still respond positively to people who we share food with across the table. That was a lot to say. You see, this is my problem. That's one slide, and I've got 40 slides. But anyway, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's always like this. Never mind. I'll speed up. Um, or not. Um, of course, the problem of how to eat is directly linked to the problem of how to live. Um, and of course, if you are a hunter-gatherer, critically, you just live in what I call living in the larder. You just live in a landscape that feeds you. And it's very, very interesting, quite recently. I don't know whether any of you have um, come across the amazing book by David Wengro and David Graeber called The Dawn of Everything. Uh, um, and if you haven't, I highly recommend it. But I mean, it's completely fascinating. It's a sort of survey of the last, well, basically of our evolution as a species. Um, and what they say is that basically hunter-gathering has had a really bad press. It was actually an incredibly positive, healthy, contented way to live. And actually, modern hunter-gatherers, even though they're pushed out to marginal lands these days, they still think of nature as a place that just feeds them. And a lot of them say, you know, the forest is my mother and so on. So there's this direct relationship with the natural world. And there's a reason, actually, why 
it's portrayed in the Bible and elsewhere as a kind of paradise because actually when people started farming, life got a lot harder, people's lifespans shrunk because you were sort of reducing down a palette of, let's say, 300 species a week down to kind of five, you know, um, and people got ill. They started getting vitamin deficiencies and so on. So there's something very profound, as I say, about this way of living that we've left behind. And, of course, we can't go back to, but it is still us. It is still who we are. Now, as I say, when we started farming, it all got a lot more complicated, or you could say a lot simpler, actually. <laughs> you could argue it either way. But it, got, it was very different, in other words. Um, now, I'm just kind of going to spin through um, thousands of years of evolution in about 10 minutes, just to give you all a headache. Um, but basically, if you look at... One, this is one of the first cities ever built. It's in ancient Mesopotamia. <laughs> It's one of the um, early cities that's highly evolved enough to be considered by all architects to be unambiguously a city. Um, and what we see with it is something very interesting. So the city itself is this, obviously this bit in the middle, which is only partially excavated. So that bit saying residential area there gives you an idea of how dense it was. It's incredibly dense. Um, and, of course, it's on a river. It's surrounded by countryside. I often call it the fried egg model um, of urbanity. So if you think of the urban bit as the yoke, the white is the countryside around. Um, and this was an incredibly successful model that was repeated all over the world. But critically, if you can see this large, enormous temple complex that dominates it, the interesting thing is that the temple was not only the spiritual centre of the city, but also the administrative centre, and its most important task was to organise the harvest. Because the harvest, so the growing of grain, because people are farming now, was a convulsively important moment in the year, because basically if the harvest failed or not was determining whether people could eat or not. The thing about farming is you can't just wander off and eat something else. So if you think back to the hunter-gatherers, they're eating about 300 species a week. You know, if that bush is empty or that's not, that plant's not doing very well, you just eat something else. With farming, you've got all your, you know, as our grandmothers would say, eggs in one basket. If the crop fails, you're basically screwed. So there's a lot of praying going on during the year in the temple. And then if everything went well, thank goodness, the grain came in, it was offered to the gods in the famous ziggurat, I'm sorry, I'm just pointing randomly, um, but, you know, you, so, so just to the ziggurat is the bit that looks like, you know, kind of, I don't know, what is it, like a sort of warship coming at you on its side. And then there's, can you see the huge temple granary, the building with lots of divisions? That's the temple granary. That's like the, the reserve bank of the ancient city where all the grain is kept. That's then cooked in the, in the kitchens, which is just north of that, and then distributed through the city through the course of the year. So to summarise what is, of course, a much more complex problem um, than I'm able to describe in my short time with you, if we were going to say how do the world's first cities feed themselves, we would say that they were city-states, so that's the fried egg, and they're dominated by a large, centralised, spiritualised food distribution hub. It was a very successful model. It was repeated all over the world, um, and interestingly, I mean, probably most of you know that Athens was a polis, and polis actually means city-state, so it's the same model. Actually, it was the Greeks, um, that's Aristotle you're looking at there, it was the Greeks who first started asking in a kind of very concerted way, how do you feed a city? Um, both Plato and Aristotle worried about this, 
Uh, and I, I love Aristotle's term political animals, some of you may have heard of. He, he calls humans political animals. And I love this term because it describes the duality that arises out of living in a city. So if you think back to the hunter-gatherers, they live in small groups, you know, it's a kind of extended family, they're living in the larder, it's all happening at the same time. There's no division. Once you start living in a city, great, you're living with all your, all your mates and lots of other mates that you maybe don't know, um, and so the social side is fantastic, or the political side is taken care of, but you're starting to get removed from nature, your source of sustenance. So the term political animals, as it were, describes this duality, which is, if you like, at the heart of you know, the problem that we face when we live in cities. Now, the Greeks came up with this term, economia, and this means household management. And the idea is that the ideal situation is that every citizen has a house in the city and a farm in the countryside, and the farm feeds the house. So that's a self-sufficient household unit. That's good economia, good household management. And of course, if every citizen has that arrangement, then fantastic, the city can feed itself. And that's ideal, because then it can be politically independent. So for both Plato and Aristotle, was an ideal size of a city, which was for economia to be possible. And it shouldn't get any bigger than that. Um, once it's big enough to have all the sort of resources of the state, you know, police and law and whatever it was they needed, then it shouldn't get any bigger because this was an ideal, that it should be able to feed itself. Now, that word probably looks or sounds slightly familiar, does it? Economy? It's the basis of our modern word economy. Now, what's really interesting about that is that there was another word in Greek called krematistike, which I, um, we didn't adopt into a modern word, surprise, surprise. That means making money for its own sake. And interestingly, Aristotle said, making money for its own sake is a really bad idea because there's no such thing as enough money. So you'll never find a balance between the city and country. You'll never sort of find happiness. So in Greek, everything was about sort of finding that balance, which I find interesting. And I hope you do as well. I find all this interesting, by the way. I've watched, and I hope you do too. Anyway, so for me, you know, the image that really sums up this kind of ideal between the city and the country is this wonderful fresco. Do any of you know it? Ambrogio, any of you? Ambrogio Lawrence, are you just being shy? Yes, yes, yes. excellent. So, good, <laughs> wonderful. It's, um, you're being shy, of course, or you do know it, of course. Sorry, <laughs> that's a bit ambiguous. Anyway, it's, it's, it sits on a wall um, of the Sienese Town Hall, and it's about 20 metres long, so it's huge. Um, and as you can see, it's called The Allegory of the Effects of Good Government, and it shows the city of Siena and the landscape that feeds Siena. Very unusually, they're given equal billing. Because normally, I mean, if you think of all the sort of images of cities you've seen, it's normally the city is kind of here, you know, being all important. There's a little bit of kind of green stuff in the background, if you're lucky. So it's very unusual for the city and the country to be given equal billing like this. Now, I mean, and there's reason for that, which we can go into later. But what I find really interesting is that this red wall in the middle that looks like a barrier when you first look at it is actually a membrane because there are constantly things, kind of people, animals, moving between huntsmen leaving the city to go and shoot a ball for dinner, animals with grain on their backs coming in, on the inside a flock of sheep, a woman with a basket of eggs on her head and so on. So you see that what you're actually looking at 
is a kind of constantly rebalancing, evolving, dynamic, symbiotic partnership. Um, I mean, the modern terminology would probably be a system. Um, and then I find it really interesting to look again at the title, The Allegory of the Effects of Good Government. And remember, this is sitting in the town hall. So all the city elders are looking at this going, hmm, that would be a good idea. You know, our job is to keep this balance between the city and the country because that is the core of urban civilization. Now, when you realize that, and it's weird because I, mean, I remember seeing this image as an architecture student and just thinking, oh, what a lovely image of Syed and kind of wandering off. You know, it took me 20 more years to realize it's all about food. <laughs> um, food, I often say, it's so present in our lives that it's impossible to see, it's too big to see because it's absolutely everywhere. We just wouldn't be here without it. That's why it's so powerful as a way of seeing the world once you learn to switch your food-shaped glasses on. Now, why is an image like this not on every city hall in the world? It's a really good question. Part of the answer is that, well, that, of course, is the modern condition that we find, um, is that actually the city-state has been a very rare model in, in sort of the post-ancient the post -ancient world, um, because it is very difficult to balance city and country. And usually cities are far too dominant. They, they write all the narratives, they have all the cash, they wage all the wars, um, and they dominate. And, there, you know, and I'm going to talk a lot more about how we actually got here, which, of course, you will recognise... Um, very well, the sort of the fact that most of us now live in mega cities or, or at least cities, large cities. The food that we've, you know, that we eat often comes from thousands of miles away. We have no idea from where. Often from landscapes that you know you wouldn't want to necessarily paint and stick on a wall anyway. Um, you know, and I call this the urban paradox. And the urban paradox stems from Aristotle's term that I was just talking about: political animals that we need to be together because we're political or social, but the more we gather together to be social, the further and further we get from our sources of sustenance. And of course, because of many embedded ideas about progress and so on, this is the direction everything is going in. So, okay, how do we get here? Now, this is the short version of this, um, but we've just been looking at cities, we've just been looking at the fact that feeding themselves is quite a big deal. Um, we've learned that grain is the food of cities, and that always has been the case, and it still is the case now. And we've learned a little bit about the fact that the Greeks, for example, worried about how to get the grain into the city and how to get the food in, and they thought the city should remain small. Now, of course, this is all down to geography. And I'm showing you a sort of very abstract sort of <laughs> diagram here, but it will get much more interesting, I promise you, when you start looking at real cities through this lens. Now, the first, this is Johann von Thunen's isolated state. Johann von Thunen was a German geographer and landowner, and he's the first person to really ask how the productive hinterland of a city would naturally evolve. And he imagined this non-existent place, which was a flat, featureless, fertile plain inhabited only by logical, profit-seeking farmers. And I often say it is a bit like the Netherlands. Um, and if you stick a city in the middle of that, how does its productive hinterland evolve? And he said, well, in the middle, right at the core, just in the suburbs, you would have fruit and vegetables. Why? Because fruit and vegetables are soft and squishy and they go off very easily, so they're difficult to transport far. 
Second, they were luxury foods. They always have been luxury foods, of course, they still are today. Um, so the farmers uh, growing them could afford the high land rents of growing them just by the city, where the land would cost more. And last but not least, they'd be able to make very good use of so-called night soil, which is human and animal manure, which was saved, dumped on the land, um, to bring the vegetables on you know, ahead of season, and people would pay crazy money for you know, a kind of cucumber three weeks ahead of... <laughs> when it should be tasting of shit. So actually nothing very much has changed um, in that respect either. So, so the sort of ecological loop, basically. Then beyond it, a band of about 25 to 30 miles of various kinds of production, crop production, including grain. Um, now, the grain couldn't be grown any further away from the city, and this is because even though grain was the most important food in terms of being the urban staple, it was very heavy and bulky in relation to its value. And that meant that if you had to sort of trundle it in on a cart for more than about, you know, let's say 40 kilometres, it just wasn't worth it. And therefore that limited the size to which the city could grow. And then the outer band was grazed animals, animals grazed on what Adam Smith called unimproved pasture, in other words, grass, uh, which, by the way, is why we co-evolve with cows and sheep, is because they can eat grass and we can't. Uh, as I don't probably have to tell you. Um, and then the cows could walk in, uh, providing their own transport, and they could be, therefore, raised hundreds of miles away. Now, the only concession to geography that von Chilin made was to say that if the city was on a navigable river then all of those bands could be a lot further away because you could just take the grain up to the river and then get it in by water, and it was much cheaper and easier to do that. There's been a study done that said, you know, by river, probably eight times cheaper and easier, by sea, about 50 times. So, as I say, Snoozeville, because it's all very abstract, gets much more interesting when you look at actual cities. Here is one. This is my home city. And you can just see what Fontaine is talking about playing out in real time. So this is uh, a series of maps of London in the 16th century. Top left, you can see the fruit and vegetables dutifully being grown on the outskirts, as he said. Grain mostly coming in by river, because it's heavy and bulky, trying to get up to Cornhill, where it was traded. And of course, the street names themselves will tell you where the food was being traded. And there will be, by the way, streets in Rotterdam. I'm really sorry I haven't kind of um, done, done my usual little kind of map study. But there will be names of streets and places in Rotterdam that are also to do with food. Um, fish, of course, is also coming in by river, coming into the two main river ports of Queenhive and Billingsgate. Billingsgate, some of you may know, remained London's main fish market until 1984. And something that's very interesting about food is that you know, food ways, once they're established, very rarely move. Um, and fish Street, you can see Friday Street is where you... You probably can't read that, but it says Friday Street. That's where you went to buy your fish on a Friday when the eating of meat was forbidden, as it was in a lot of Europe. Because, of course, meat was a luxury food and a seasonal food. And the way the church... I mean, this is a huge subject, but, I mean, the way the church... And, of course, the church was, if you like, kind of the, the, poli the politicians of the day. The way they got over the fact that people were hungry or unable to eat what they wanted, is to make it a religious decree that they should be hungry or not be able to eat what they wanted, which, of course, is what Lent is. Lent covers the hungry gap. So you're fasting to be pure, but actually there's no food anyway. But it flips it. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, but that's how it works. Um, 
and, well, discuss. Um, and then bottom right is the meat. So the meat is walking in, or the animals, sorry, are walking in. They're coming into Smithfield. You probably can't read it, but that big sort of blob there. Smooth field outside Newgate is where the animals congregated. So food is really shaping the city. It's actually kind of, you know, coursing through the streets, occupying the same streets that the people are occupying. Um, and shaping it as it goes. As I say, I, I haven't done a detailed analysis. I, I will do at some point, by the way, because I know it's going to be incredible. But just to say that, you know, very, very obviously, and it's amazing to be in the docks now. I seem to have got a lot louder all of a sudden. But anyway, sorry. Um, just got excited by this. I mean, look at this. I mean, this is just a mind-boggling map. And this is 1652. This is Rotterdam. It's at the head of the Rhine, so it's able to bring all the stuff up from Germany, trade it with the rest of Europe. I mean, it's just really just going great guns. Look at the size of the docks, incredible. We're probably in there somewhere, I don't know where. And look again, but you can see Fontuna on the outside, all the market gardens surrounding the city, and there will be a meat market, and there will be a fish market, and all the usual stuff. But I mean, just to say that because of this business of you know, transporting food by sea being 50 times cheaper, any city with access to the sea was just quids in. They were just you know, rocking it. They had so much more power over a landlocked or, or cities without that, that access to the sea. Of course, Rome is the famous example, and I just haven't got my Rome slides in today because I get so excited, I overrun on time so horribly. But <laughs> Rome is obviously the, the, the ancient example of that phenomenon. I mean, just talking about this sort of business, as I was just saying, okay, the animals are walking in, great, but it's still not easy, because then you've got a space like this full of 10,000 animals. And what do you do with that? And of course, this, I mean, Smithfield, this is what we're looking at now, uh, was surrounded by unlicensed slaughterhouses, 184 of them, and the animals were just killed, you know, any old how. Um, not very well, obviously, uh, and the unwanted bits dumped in the river behind there, which just turned into a kind of cesspool. Um, so it's, it's kind of on the edge of really not working, I would say, um, at this point in the 1830s. Um, but there are other things to say about it, which is that food is still visible, so you couldn't really live in a city like this and not know where your food came from. So this is the turning point. Oh, I just I allowed myself to stick these slides in. This is a bit naughty, time-wise. Um, so we talked about geography, and we've talked about the difficulty of feeding the city. It's very, very political. Um, and I just wanted to actually give you a little quiz, if you're ready for that. It should be easy. A tale of two cities, London and Paris. You're looking at the main river ports. Can you notice a key difference? Sorry? There, is, there are riverbanks, kind of, in, yeah, that's a bit muddier, that is true, but that isn't what I'm looking at. But thank you. Yeah. A, a prize to the gentleman who said big ships. These are ocean-going ships, these are river barges. And I often say this explains Brexit, although nothing explains Brexit, of course. And now it's just when I sort of ceremonially do this and, and, and kill myself, it's so mad. The reason, so... so but the reason I say that is because London had a nav that navigable river that Fontuna was talking about. So it could always bring hello, it could always bring its food in from wherever. And indeed, you know, it was a Roman city, so it was already importing food from the Mediterranean when it was founded. Paris could not do that, and this had profound consequences. And I've just stuck a naughty slide in. 
I mean, it's so fascinating. This. If you want to know more about it, I highly recommend Stephen Kaplan's book, Provisioning Paris, which goes into... It's longer than The Lord of the Rings. You know, <laughs> it's one of those books that you sort of pick up at the library and think, oh, I'll just skim a few facts out of this. And it was so fascinating. I just read the whole thing, kind of making completely detailed notes. It took about a month to read, but it's absolutely fascinating. And it tells you why politicians are terrified of food. Because what happened was the king known as the baker of last resort, was responsible for feeding the people. And because Paris couldn't just import food from wherever, as London could, and as Rotterdam could, and indeed still does, of course, and then feeds London, it had to impose its political will on the landscape by force. And as you can imagine, in a at a time when one in three harvests failed, this was a really popular policy in the countryside. Not. Um... So it was a nightmare, and there was a huge hierarchy called the grain police who were officially meant to feed the city, but of course they couldn't control the food system. And I mean, a third of the food coming into Paris was on the black market, and, 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 and. Anyway, cut to the chase, 1780s, series of felled harvests, actually because in Iceland it volcano goes off. So, I mean, you know, food... This is really interesting, actually. When food is highly concentrated, as indeed it is today, of course... And something happens, like in those days, an Icelandic volcano went off, or today the war in Ukraine is obviously an equivalent. The fragility of the system is exposed. And what happened in France in the 1780s is that Paris ran out of food, Baker of the Last Resort gets blamed, he tries to flee the city, um, and the police catch up with him. And this is a political cartoon of the time, which I find so interesting, because it's called Fat Birds Fly Slowly. And the idea behind this is that Louis XVI is trying to save his life, but he's so greedy that he stopped for chicken dinner, and that's why the police caught up with him. So this man was too bad, evil, nasty to feed people, but so greedy he, he wanted to feed himself, and that's why he was caught. So, as I say, if you want a sort of snapshot of why politicians are terrified of food and don't want anything to do with being responsible for it, look no further. And there are many other examples, by the way. Now... To the delight of all um, uh, urban leaders and politicians globally, uh, fairly soon after all that, this came along. And this is a complete game changer. And I call this slide Goodbye Geography because I've obviously been talking quite... I'm terribly worried about time because I'm enjoying myself too much. Just, just give me an idea. Of, oh, it says 20 minutes. Does, is that how long I've taken already? No, we have 15 minutes left. Oh, that's okay, actually. Ish. <laughs> Thank you. Brilliant, brilliant. Wonderful. Um, so three key things happen when the railways come along. So obviously what the railways do is they allow you to transport food over long distances rapidly for the first time. This is completely a game changer. So the first thing is obviously cities which have up to this point been constrained by geography. The only way of sort of growing big was to be on the, have access to the sea, Rome, Rotterdam, etc. Um, now any city could grow big anywhere, any size, basically. Second thing, food up to now has been visible because it's been moving in front of your window. Now it's going to start travelling down hidden logistical paths that nobody sees. Third thing, politicians who've grudgingly and unwillingly been in charge of food now go, whoosh, Thank goodness we don't have to think about that anymore because the food industry is going to feed people for us. Three profound changes that we still kind of are really confronting today, or failing to confront, you might say. That's just a graphic showing you London. You know, the, the 1840s when the railways came, it's barely bigger than the medieval city we're just looking at. It very, very rapidly just goes 
<laughs> sorry, that was a technical term, splat. Um, you know, a, a city you couldn't possibly just feed from one or two little markets that people walk to. So the food system gets deeply unregulated at this point. Of course, the productive hinterland is similarly being transformed. So this is just an example. I mean, the new, the new world is obviously where it's most radically transformed because there you have literally millions of acres of uh, grassland that was completely inaccessible, such as in the American Midwest, grazed by an estimated 60 million bison and five different Native American tribes. They're all, the bison are slaughtered from machine guns on top of the trains. The Indians or the Native Americans are either killed or moved to reservations. That's a pile of the bison skulls. They weren't really interested in that. What they were interested in was this, creating the world's first monocultural vast grain plains. Um, and it's the first time in history there's been a, a massive, reliable grain glut because grain is still the key food, of course. And what do people do when they have more grain than they know what to do with? They start feeding it to cows, and of course this is the beginning of industrialised meat and a so-called cheap meat, you know, because meat does become very, very affordable because it's being fed on grain. Now, some of you probably know, well, of course, cows evolve to eat grass, which is why we co-evolve with them, as I said earlier. If you feed them on grain, Lots of bad stuff happens. I mean, they'll eat it, just like we'll eat nothing but fast food, if, if, if you let us. Um, but it's not good for us. And actually, they get sick when they eat grain, which is why they have to keep being pumped full of antibiotics to sort of just keep them healthy, which, of course, is a complete catastrophe. Um, and the other thing to say is, of course, you could be feeding 10 times as many humans if we just ate the grain rather than ate the cows if we ate the grain. Um, and also, the meat is no longer high value. So basically... Grass-fed beef is omega-6, which is like ideal brain food, very, very superfood, um, whereas grain-fed cows are full of omega-6s, which is basically what we have far too much of in our diet anyway, and that's a whole other... That's getting very technical, but it's, it's bad anyway. The, the, as Michael Pollan said, you are what you eat, and you are what what you eat eats. <laughs> Sorry, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it is true. Um... Anyway, this whole the apparent miracle of cheap food was exposed very rapidly. Um, some of you have probably heard of the Dust Bowl, you know, the fact that you can't just sort of turn perennial grassland into monocultural annually cropped uh, grainland without the soil, you know, basically losing its uh, nourishment or its nutrition, its kind of uh, organic matter over, over the course of years until it just had very little left. And then there was a series of disastrous dry summers and the topsoil just basically blew away from the whole of the, the Midwest. Absolute massive catastrophe. Um, which is really the beginning of the sort of awareness that, oh, maybe this kind of solve the whole problem of how to eat through technology thing isn't going quite as well as we hoped. Um, and it's the beginning of this debate, which of course is still raging today, the kind of industrial versus organic thing. Now, on the left, in the, in the kind of blue corner, you've got Justus Liebig, who's a brilliant German chemist, who was the first person to work out the main nutrients that plants need, which are nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. That's NPK, some of you probably heard of. Um, and, of course, if you're going to farm monoculturally, that's what you have to chuck on the ground, because the soil is not being replenished, so you have to chuck on fast food for plants. And it really is fast food for plants, by the way. Um, and you do that by using a, a process called the Harbour-Bosch process. How many of you have heard of this out of interest? Quite a lot, and um, that's quite impressive. 
that's five out of 80, which is high. So congratulations. If I told you that without this process, two out of five people in the world wouldn't be here, would that kind of amaze you? I mean, it amazed me when I read it. Basically, the Harbour-Bosch process is a way of replicating lightning strikes in a lab, which is nature's, one of nature's way of fixing atmospheric nitrogen. So nitrogen being a key nutrient for plants, getting a bit technical again, I know. But I mean, basically, we are feeding ourselves by feeding MPK artificially produced um, to plants. Now, in the red corner, as it were, Albert Howard, the father of the modern organic movement, he saw this going on and went, no, this is a disaster because... What happens in the natural world is that plants form natural connections under the ground with mycorrhizal fungi or soil fungi. And soil fungi, which are everywhere, <laughs> if you ever sort of picked up a rock and looked on the bottom, all that sort of spider-webby stuff, that's what it is. Um, they are the organisms that can extract micronutrients from minerals in the soil and they feed them to the plant. So that, under the microscope there, is a little marketplace. The plant, which as you might remember from your kind of half-remembered biology lessons, you know, a billion years ago, can perform this thing called, sorry, that's a bit rude. I mean, for me, it feels like that. Photosynthesis, basically the ability to make car you know, carbon, actually ultimately, or sugars, out of sunlight is a pl the plant's unique magic skill, you could say. And that's why plants are the basis of the food system. Now, if I tell you that plants will give up a third of the sugars they produce to mycorrhizal fungi in exchange for micronutrients, that gives you some scale of how much the plants value proper nutrition. Now, that is the basis of plant health. And because everything that we eat that's made above ground comes from plants, is the basis of our health. So, guess what? When you feed plants MPK, they don't bother to make those connections. The roots don't form because they think they're being fed. They're not being fed. So they get very big, but they get very weak, and they get very sick, and therefore they have to be pumped full of herbicides, pesticides, and so on. So this is something really important to understand, and it kind of blew my mind when I finally got my head around it, and it's full of tiny little creatures with long Latin names, of course, but, you know, um, that's the principle. Now, Albert Howard and the organic lobby were winning that argument, and then this happened. And this is what I was saying before about, you know, these shocks that come to the food system or to just life in general. The Second World War, I mean, it's a rather beautiful poster, but you can see what it's basically saying. Grow as much food as you can anyhow, was the message. And this is when we took the decisive step down the chemical route. It was also partly because actually governments wanted the chemical factories to stay in production. So basically, munitions became pesticides and so on in case there was another war. So that's when it, we went decisively down that road in the West. Now, of course, after the war, there's another transport type that transforms the cities, namely cars. Oh, there is something about the mic. That, oh. um, I'm very audible, aren't I? I mean, it's not an issue with the sound. No, no. Oh, it's a bit late to ask anyway, but yeah. Um, I just thought I would anyway. Um, of course, you know, the, the car, this idea of freedom, just living anywhere. Um, so it's like a sort of the, the extension of that sort of blurging of the city to a ludicrous extent. Of course, all of these suburbs have been built over prime farmland. Why? 
because the little towns that they're expanding out of were built on prime farmland because nobody in the pre-industrial world was nutty enough to build a human settlement anywhere you couldn't feed it. So they chose all the best land, of course. So that happened. Um, of course, you don't walk to a market anymore. You drive to a supermarket. You wander around in eternal springtime. Apparently, people would walk 10 times further if they were in an air-conditioned box than they would if they were just in a normal city centre. So it's a very good economic model, because if you're wandering around, you're spending. Food, meanwhile, has been denatured to withstand the crazy logistics of this system. So she just kind of popped out for a pint of milk. She's come back with all of this stuff. Because, of course, the food is now selling itself directly to her. And an element of this that I haven't talked about is the dehumanisation of the food system. So mechanisation, but also the supermarkets. The whole idea behind them was to get rid of people because like, people cost money. That's what capitalism does, basically. It dehumanises everything, strips the human out. So the packaging talk to the human, and the food inside is completely kind of reconstituted, highly processed, so it can stay kind of edible forever, basically. But our bodies can't digest it, so it's making us sick. And, and that's another big discovery now that probably some of you know, is that now that we're really understanding the microbiome and so on, you know, it was never sugar, it was never salt, it was never fat, it's highly processed food that's the problem. Um, of course, you know, think back to the city of Ur that I showed you right at the beginning. You know, it's literally the opposite of that now. Food is no longer going where the people are, it's going where the money is. And the money, um, of course, this is a map of New York, it's all in the kind of that central part you're looking at. That's fine. The red areas are areas where you have to walk more than 500 yards to get any fresh food at all. And they're called food deserts. And of course, they map onto areas like the Bronx and Harlem and high levels of crime, poverty, um, and ill health, of course. Um, there is no such thing as cheap food. Five minutes in the gloom, yes. There is no such thing as cheap food. Um, now, I'm just going to sort of pause a moment to sort of ask together or remind ourselves together what food actually is. Food consists of living things that we kill so we can live. So food is life. So if you cheapen food, you're cheapening life. And of course, that is what we've been doing for about 150 years now. These are some of the externalities, uh, lost or degraded soils, climate uh, emissions, uh, gases. 70% um, of, of fresh water is being used in farming, a lot of that from non-renewable resources. Um, Two billion people overweight, about 800 million going up at the moment uh, without enough food, diet-related disease. COVID itself, of course, is an externality of all of this because we've reduced the biodiversity right down and we're going encroaching in wilderness and that's when the pathogens can jump across. Food waste, because we don't value food. A uh, vast amount of grain going uh, to feed animals rather than us. Um, ten uh, calories of energy being expended for every calorie we consume. And a catastrophic decline in bird and insect life in chemically farmed areas um, because of all of the above. So, as I say, there is no such thing as cheap food. Uh, unfortunately... This is kind of what I call my Armageddon slide. Um, the world is going in this direction because, if you remember, I said politicians gave, they ceded control of the food industry, uh, of, of the food supply to the food industry. And this is the kind of food that you make a lot of money out of, the highly processed stuff that's really bad for us. Now, um, this is... 
it's sort of halfway through my talk, um, and, and I've run out of time. So I'm going to just go really, really quickly, and then maybe we can go back to some of the stuff in the questions. I told you I do this. It's terrible. Um, you're just such a lovely audience, and it's such a lovely space. I just got, got into it um, dangerously. So, But, um, okay, this is kind of where we've been. We've just sort of a brief recap. We learned to control fire and cook food. We started farming. We started burning fossil fuels. Now the question is, you know, do we make meat in a lab? What do we do? We lived in the larder, then we lived on farms, now we're living in cities again. What do we do? What kind of spaces do we create for the future? We used to just basically hunt and feed ourselves in a kind of continuum. Um, we didn't even really have a concept of work. Then we had a craft-based life, now we have a screen-based life. And of course, as we know, the robots are coming. You know, you've heard about this. There's something like 30% of even white-collar jobs are going to be defunct. They're going to be robotized in the next 15 years. Um, well, if not, um, maybe start kind of um, learning how to plumb. Or, um, so, what do we do? Well, I think, I love this question. This is Cedric Price, brilliant uh, British architect. He never built very much, but he was a great thinker. And I love this. Technology is the answer, but what was the question? And I think that's where we are. We, we've come so far, we've done so much, but what on earth are we doing? It all seems to be falling apart. Now, this is where food gets really interesting, because, of course, one thing that hasn't changed is the question of how to eat. We actually haven't solved it. It just looked like we had, but we haven't. That's why, actually, when you look back in history, all these utopians, the Greeks worrying about how to feed the city, Thomas More worrying about London getting too big and greedy and saying, you know, we should go back to having little city-states again. Um, Ebenezer Howard, which is basically Thomas More with railways, the idea is the same. It's actually, let's go back to the fried egg so we can sort of have independence, closeness to nature and so on. Now, these are all utopian visions. Um, and again, there's so much to say about that. But I mean, this is just why I went Greek with my words, utopia. Because if you look at what utopia actually means, it's a good place, but it can't exist because it aims at idealism. It aims at an ideal city or an ideal society. Um, and, and it's kind of a joke word. Now, I remember being really depressed when I read that. And I thought, well, we desperately need a way of thinking in a multidisciplinary way about how we should live. Um, and by then, I'd sort of spent years studying how to feed a city, and I realised how profoundly food shapes our lives. And that's why I just invented a Greek alternative. So basically, Sitopia is just a food-based practical alternative to Utopia. It's a way of saying, how do we live good lives? How do we build a city? How do we just do this thing? I'm just going to have to take the five minutes I don't have just to get to the end, even fast, sorry. Um, what does that mean? Okay, at every stage of the food cycle, and as I explained earlier, food is going through our lives in a big cycle, we have choices. That at the top left is a CAFO, concentrated animal feeding operation. That's tens of thousands of cows being fed on grain, getting sick, wandering around their own poo. Or do we eat much less meat but better quality meat and we actually let the cows eat grass? And there's a lot to say about this, obviously, which I'm sure will come up in the discussions we have. Do we leave the city in the name of efficiency or do we go into the middle of the city and actually meet humans when we buy our food and let food animate space? Do we take time for food? So before the pandemic, this is one of my favourite stats, one in five meals in America was being eaten in a car. No wonder they're going nuts. You know... <laughs> Um, I'll vote for Trump. Um, you know, so, so what are we doing? It's, it's really mad, the world we've created. 
And the question, therefore, is not which of these are a better or worse food system, although that is a question. The question is, which of these feed into a bigger vision of what a good life might look like? Now, of course, there are competing paradigms here. On the left, have you heard of this stuff called Soylent? Yeah, it's food replacement sludge. And the idea is that we can hack our way. So this is a sort of supreme technological idea. You can just hack our way out of having to eat at all, wander around looking gorgeous in a college campus, and game over, it's all fine. Or is the answer that we sort of start actually taking pleasure and sort of getting involved in the food system again? And actually, these paradigms come from very distinct philosophical strains. And that's actually Rob Reinhardt. He's the inventor of Soylent. And I'm actually very fond of him because he, to me, completely epitomizes a sort of mindset that I find fascinatingly weird. Um, so this quote is my favorite quote, all the quotes I've come across in all my work. Worrying about something as simple as food in the digital age is weird, says Rob Reinhardt. Now, he nearly killed himself about three times when he was making this stuff, because he just looked up, oh, oh, you need iron, you need nitrogen, you need zinc, shove it all in, drink it. Nearly killed himself, because he just completely underestimated the complexity of what the body actually needs. Um, anyways, so much to say about him. On the other side, that is Epicurus. Epicurus is very misunderstood. Um, he's, he's not all about fine dining and fine wine. And blah, blah, blah. Actually, the opposite. He just says, we are built for pleasure, so why don't we build a good life around the things that give us pleasure? And, of course, their necessities. And things like eating are at the core of that. You know, you have to eat, why not enjoy it, would be a kind of way of summing up. Most of what he wrote has been destroyed, which is quite good, because he wrote about 50 books. And he's the only philosopher I can actually quote, knowing that I've read everything he wrote, or, or that's remained till today. But, um, so it's difficult. To, but that's the essence of what he, what he thought. Of course... This is basically the world you get out of those two philosophies. You know, that's what cheese looked like when I was a kid. That's kind of what cheese looks like now in the UK. So it's basically which of these worlds do we actually want to live in? Um, we value food when we don't have it, when we don't have enough of it. And again, the war in Ukraine is a sort of very, very clear example of that. And so was COVID, actually. I don't know whether you had... I mean, in the UK, we, we had fights in supermarkets over the last can of tomatoes because nobody in the UK can cook. So basically, cans of tomatoes became like... <laughs> um, so, so that's really interesting. But I mean, you know, London during the Second World War, Havana after the fall of the Soviet Union, Detroit after the cars left, it was always the same. People went back to growing food. They started forming food networks. They remember the true value of food. Um, what they're really doing is they're democratising the food system. Now, there's probably one person in the room that actually knows this diagram. The, yes, Jan Willem. Um, the, the, this study... That's not you, though, is it? No, it's another Jan Willem. Sorry, Sally, oh, my God. Um, this study that was done actually quite a long time ago now, six European countries looking at the food system and discovering that there were 3 million farmers, 160 million consumers, but only 110 supermarket buyers were controlling that relationship. That is a monopoly. Now, if you believe, as I do, that if a food system looks like that, then society looks like this, they map onto each other directly. If you want to live in a democracy, you can't have a food system that looks like that. One way of addressing it is to do that, and it's just to join the roots of the branches, and that's basically what the food movement is doing. Now, again, there's vast amounts to say about this. 
And there's so much that I've actually kind of almost reduced it down to just a few examples. Carlo Petrini, you probably know, the father of slow food, founder of slow food, brilliant, brilliant thinker. That is better, isn't it? You see, should have been up there all along. Never mind. Um, he has this wonderful term of co-producing. So the idea here is that, you know, I don't just kind of lie in my pyjamas at two in the morning ordering up my Thai curry, but I actually go out, I meet the people feeding me, I work with them, I pay them in advance and so on. There are many, many ways of doing this. There's the community-supported agriculture model, top left, where you just pay the farmer in advance, maybe work on the farm. Food co-ops, where you just join up and basically do four hours a month. You know, it looks like a supermarket, but it's all to do with doing deals directly with local farmers. Um, you know, farmers themselves can obviously join co-ops and therefore have a bit more bargaining power. It doesn't all have to be the big guys. Or, you know, the I just chose the food courts in Singapore, which are urban institutions that allow small-scale family businesses to thrive. But, I mean, there's a billion other examples of that. Um, of course, as an architect, I'm really interested in how food gets reincorporated in our thinking about how we inhabit landscape. Um, and again, there are very, very obvious things here. Actually, all the sort of really obvious models are the pre-industrial ones, because we're now entering what I call the neo-geographical age. You know, that goodbye geography bit is over. Geography, nothing matters more than geography now. And of course, politics and economics all come out of geography. So what are we going to do? We need a more regional, more seasonal food system. But how does that actually work? Well, you have to do certain things. You have to make space... Sorry, I mean, urban growing is one thing, but also peri-urban farming is critical. And we have someone in the audience here called Paul who is doing, building uh, forest gardens in, in peri-urban space. But that has to be protected. Otherwise, it's just going to get swallowed up by another office block. Um, that means you need governance. You need food at the centre of governance, as Toronto Policy uh, Food Policy Council has done. Markets, everyone, everyone who goes to a market loves them. Everyone who lives near a market hates them because, you know, all the councils running the space, oh, it's all messy and all the mess, and, uh, you know. So we have to fight for these spaces because they're critical if we're going to move to a sort of more uh, ethical, seasonal, regional food system. Infrastructure like abattoirs, if we're going to farm with animals, which, by the way, I believe we should, but, as I said, much lower quantities of much higher quality meat on the back of a plant-based system, uh, mixed-use farms and so on, we need local abattoirs like these guys in New York State. Food hubs, there's just so many amazing examples of these, and I know there's some in Rotterdam as well, indeed, and we can maybe hear about that later. That one's in Antwerp, actually, um, called Pact food-growing, food-based uh, companies, a food market every once a week and so on. And patchwork farms, of course the city can never feed itself, that is the urban paradox. But that doesn't stop us from bringing food-growing into the city. And the value of that is not just, you know, fruit and veg on your doorstep, it's actually the social element of people actually getting involved in food again, relearning what it means to be fed as a human. And that's what we need to do. We need to re-educate ourselves to value food. And by the way, I mean, I have to say, I grow some Danish pickling cucumbers on my tiny roof in London, and it's been kind of transformative. Because <laughs> you actually have to start thinking about a farmer, like a farmer. You have to think, what am I going to grow this year? Where do I get the seeds? You know, where do I get my compost? And so on. Um, at the sort of regional scale, there are, again, many ideas going back centuries. As I say, the Greeks thought about this stuff, but how do you bring the city and the country together? And I think that's what we need to do, and that's why I've called this Economia 2.0.
It's bringing the city and country together, either by limiting the way the city can grow, so you maximise the urban-rural interface, bringing food production back in the city, as Bernard Viljean are sort of proposing, um, interrogating the productive hinterland of a city and saying, how, what could we grow and how can we connect it to the city again? That's the study of New York. And then some of you may know this project, MVRDV's Almera Oosterwald, where they're sort of incorporating food growing in, in a, the development of a new suburb. I have a lot to say about that. Maybe that'll come up later. Um, I think the jury's out. Two more slides. Really going to just go boom. Um, the jury's out. We have to farm with nature and not against it. And again, this is a very, very rapidly growing, very exciting area in farming. Huge amount to say about that. But we know how to do this. And we can feed the world this way, by the way. This we can feed the world. I hate that formulation. But, you know, we can produce enough food between us organically to feed the, the, the global population by 2050. Nitrogen is the, is the gap at the moment, but we could close that within a decade if we actually focused any research whatsoever on the problem, just, just to get that out of the way. Last slide, which is a summary slide, really, of what I've been trying to talk along, about all along. Food is life. And in your bowl of soup or muesli, whatever it is, is the universe. And that's not just poetry, although it sounds poetic, and it does feel a bit poetic. And the reason is because of this. Everything is connected to everything else. Where you eat, who you eat with, who cooks for you, whether, you know, what that connection is. That could be a family where you've grown up, where you buy your food, the knowledge, the competition, the economy, the basis of swapping knowledge, trust, and so on. The market, of course, sits in the city. What is the relationship between the city and the countryside that feeds it? You know, waste is going out. The stuff of life is coming in. That, again, is the sort of economic engine that, that feeds all life. Of course, all that sits in nature. And this is kind of, by the way, this is like rings from a pebble in a pond radiating out from your bowl of soup. It's, it, everything is in everything else, is the point. Um, so we are part of nature. And that, of course, is what we're reminded of every time we eat. Um, it's not out there to be manipulated, it is us. And of course, we're on a planet that's revolving and spinning through space, which gives us seasons and day and night and all the rest of it. So as individuals, we have power because we can change the way we eat, but it's not enough. We need to engage the whole system. And this is what we need our politicians to understand. It wasn't okay 150 years ago that they wiped their collective brows and said, leave it to the food industry. Because the food industry is only about making money as I said right at the beginning, we're really bad at sharing through money. We're really good at sharing through food. And food is the most valuable thing in our lives. And we all have to eat every day. So why don't we put that at the heart of our economy, of our politics, of our thinking, of our way about imagining a good life fit for the 21st century? And if we do that, if we build a good sitopia, it gets surprisingly close to utopia. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for, you for, much for for pouring. I think 318, 319 pages of amazing, <laughs> amazing book in into Thank one you. hour Thank uh, you. talk. Take a seat. Um, was that an hour in the end? It doesn't matter. Sorry, we, you did amazing. Um, 
You, you, you promised us a story about how food can save the world, yet you spent about uh, 40, 45 minutes talking about how food is destroying the world. Mm. Uh, let, us, let us take about half an hour uh, discussing how food indeed can save the world, mm. uh, the, your last slides. A lot of people in the audience are, I think, professionally involved in initiatives that, that, that uh, at least try to. Um, but, but first, let me ask you the question. Food is, is destroying the world, uh, or yeah. how, we, how we relate to food at the moment. Um, where are we, would you say, in the realization process uh, mm. of, yeah. of this matter? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I would say, compared to where we were 20 years ago when I started on this journey, where there was a lot more awareness. I mean, I think if I'd have um, you know, given a talk with this title 20 years ago, it would have been you and me over a pint of beer. You know? So it really has shifted. That's very exciting. But it's still not mainstream. And what I really worry about is that, and the reason, by the way, I mean, and you're, you're right, I do talk a lot about kind of how we got here, um, but I think it's really important to understand how we got here. Otherwise, I mean, two things. Otherwise, one, it's just like you're boxing with ghosts. I mean, where do you start? It's so complicated, you know, what can I do? And secondly, you know, the, the fact that you look at history, and it's been cyclical. So Rome, which I didn't talk about today, and thank goodness, otherwise we wouldn't have an hour and 20 minutes minimum. But, you know, Rome did what we did. You know, it just had a huge empire, sucked all nutrients out, and collapsed over the course of 300 years, which is kind of where we're going again. But then, of course, you got the kind of the Lawrence City, the, the city-state, reinvented, and people saw the value of that again. So that really fascinates me. So I think history tells us that it's not all over, and we can act. Mm -hmm. um, now, the, the reason, I mean, the problem we have is that we've based our idea of a good life on the idea that there is such a thing as cheap food. And, and the reason I bang on, on about politicians so much is that that has been a political decision, is to allow this illusion to keep going, because basically, if you, as a politician, you can guarantee that you've got that problem sorted for mm. now, then that's one m massive problem out of the way. And of course, as we know, I mean, until the war in Ukraine, I mean, it's changing now, but you know, we, we were paying less than we ever have historically for food. Um, and of course, that, that then sort of means we're Let sort of Let me rephrase, how, yeah. how massively adopted would you say is the realization that food cannot be cheap? Um, I, I, I think most of us would would agree on this, but but uh, yeah, I mean this is not a very representative exactly audience, sadly, uh, not widely recognised at all, not not remotely widely recognised, okay. and it's worse than that. Sorry to be a little bit negative because mm -hmm. I I am optimistic, but I mean I that's why we need to have these kinds of discussions. Politicians are terrified. Because they know that, I mean, and they're not, it's not just food they're terrified of, it's capitalism, you might have noticed, is also crashing up against a concrete wall. So the whole business as usual is crashing up against a concrete wall. There is no plan B. That's, as you kindly said in your introduction, that's why I see what I'm trying to do with food as building lifeboats. Because I think there's going to come a time very, very soon when politicians are going to be scouting around desperately for ideas. And I think building our lives around food, rebuilding our lives around food, valuing food, re, re, sort of regionalizing food um, is the key, not only because it makes sense ecologically, but because it makes sense for us as animals. Because mm -hmm. as I said earlier, 
we need access to nature and to society. So if we reimagine the landscape, and I didn't have one of my slides, so many slides I didn't have, but you know, I didn't have one of my slides where I talk about landscapes for human and non-human flourishing, which is really what I think we need to be producing, which is reimagining the city by, as I said, bringing more sort of nature, not just productive nature, but nature back into the city, but also reimagining how we inhabit the countryside, because the kind of farming I imagine requires a lot more farmers. And by by the way, there's a lot of people who want to farm. If what they do is valued, farming, there's a lot of people who feel very, very motivated to farm. So we need to pay these people properly and we need to give them access to land yeah. to do it that how, way. Uh, how much did you follow of the crisis uh, that we are in the Netherlands at the moment? With uh, sorry, I did mean to mention that. No, see, the Netherlands is so fascinating to me because historically it never had enough land and it's constantly being, you know, uh, flooded. Um, so very, very early on, you kind of went down an engineering route. You know, you built the dikes, you built the polders, you know, you invented I did all that. I know yeah, you yeah. did. You <laughs> collectively did. did. Yeah. But I mean, it's very interesting to me. I think the reason why my work has such a resonance in the Netherlands is that I think even in the DNA in the Netherlands is the understanding that, you know, feeding people is a problem. It's not easy. It's not straightforward. So you invented basically uh, intensive agriculture. You taught us how to farm. I mean, you're actually weirdly responsible for the Industrial Revolution because your, your, response, your expertise allowed us to have an agricultural revolution in the UK, which then made it possible to have an industrial revolution. So, you know, we're, we're in it together kind of thing. And, of course, both of our countries are also seafaring nations, and we share this thing of, as I say, I mean, we have, you know, I mean, the free trade attitude, let's say, to food. And, of course, you know, the, the knowledge that by importing spices from all over the world, you can get incredibly rich, which, of course, is why all the cities in, in the Netherlands are so beautiful. You know, it's all, let's say, slightly dodgy money that is kind of uh, being gained from having a very oppressive but very successful global trading empire. So, and, and we've done the same, of course, which is why London is so beautiful. So, you know, we share that history and we share that kind of... I mean, the big difference is in the Netherlands... I have a story for you, by the way. I do talk a lot. But, you know... That's why you're here. <laughs> We've invited you, not no, to be It'd be kind of weird. Um, the, you know, I was talking about the, the, the way... I, I didn't really say it in these words, but I mean, basically, the American Great West is basically how modern industrial farming was invented, and it all happened there. There was a vast amount of cheap, cheap, inverted commas, grain available. There were three countries in, the, in, in Europe that didn't put trade embargoes on that grain. One was, I usually have this as a quiz, but we're out of, you know, we don't have enough time. So I'll just tell you, one was the UK, because we'd industrialised and we desperately needed the food. One was Denmark, and one was the Netherlands. Guess what? Denmark and the Netherlands imported the grain, fed it to cows and chickens, and then exported it to the UK in the form of bacon and eggs, which is so kind of you invented the Great British Breakfast. And you, but interestingly, you've, you've stayed at it. You, I mean, it's ludicrous mm -hmm. that the Netherlands is the second bigger exporter by value of agricultural produce in the world, and you have no land. This is insanity. And of course, the far, it's a race to the bottom. I mean, so the poor farmers here are trapped in this mm -hmm. hideous capitalistic, you know, race to the bottom where more and more and more, bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more efficient, cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, until you're, you've got, you know, 20 million pigs and making no money, which is basically where you are now. I mean, it's just, it's, it's tragic, but it is a very, very powerful symbol of why capitalism is basically screwing us. 
Um, and, and, and you see it you know, where you have this model of a thing that is inherently valuable food not being valued. Um, and there is no way out of that other than to just stop, stop doing it. I mean, we need political intervention to say, we are not going to do this anymore. We're not going to externalise the true costs of food and all the effluent running off into the sea and killing all the fish and whatever it is that is the case of the pigs. So, I mean, I find it so, so interesting to come here because, as I say, we have so much shared history as nations, but we also have this big, big difference, which is that you've really gone down that kind of mega-industrial road and, and we kind of didn't, because we just kind of, hey, we can just import it from the Dutch uh, or somebody else. And let's just have pretty fields with pony parks, which is kind of, you know, the British attitude, to be honest. No, seriously, including the government, who just don't get it. I mean, the British government do not get it. They don't get food at all. You were listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Sereman Diaz. Fari Tabarki, Geert Maarsen and myself Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plak Studio. And the graphic design is by Studio Spaas. The Dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fontanel and the Municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast. And check our website, thedependance.eu, for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next. <laughs>